Good evening. How you all doing? Yeah? Not sure. It's good to be here looking forward to tomorrow. Anyone looking forward to tomorrow and being able to have your pint inside, not outside? Or a meal inside, not outside? Anyone excited about that or not really? <laughs> we had some friends over yesterday evening and it was freezing sitting outside with the rain pouring down. Actually not on us, but on the... Um, the little tent that we were in. Maybe you're looking forward to being able to legally give people a hug. It's a bit weird, isn't it? The fact that we're not meant to and then tomorrow we can. You can come and hug, you know, my husband maybe at midnight tonight, David. He'll stay up especially for you. <laughs> and maybe, maybe you're looking forward to uh, some of the bigger gatherings that we can uh, legitimately have. I wonder what you're looking forward to uh, this evening. If you were to turn to a neighbour, what, what would you say you're looking forward to? Have any of you got holidays booked? Is anybody looking forward to a holiday? Yes? Some nodding? I know some of you are looking forward to finishing your exams. Anyone in here looking forward to finishing exams pretty soon? Yes? My son's one of those. Maybe some of you are looking forward to finishing your extension. Or uh, Tim O'Leary is looking forward to having a baby. Woo! Did you know that? Not literally, but... <laughs> and I'm sure, I don't know about you, but I have really realised this last year that looking forward to things is really important. It kind of feeds into my sense of hope and well-being and, you know, general mental health. And actually, we've been deprived of lots of things to look forward to, haven't we, over this, you know, last year in different ways. And um, looking forward to things is really important. And uh, I was reading a couple of verses this week in the book of 2 Peter, hidden away, that I hadn't really noticed before. I'm going to put them up on the screen. Verses 11 to 14. And Peter is talking to the people that he's writing to about looking forward. And he says this. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward, there's that word again, to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, don't know if we'd say that about ourselves, make every effort to be found uh, spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And as I was reading these verses this week, I was struck by the fact, you know, when I was thinking about what am I looking forward to, that Peter is expecting God's people to be looking forward to the day that Jesus returns, to the day when we, when we get to see and experience the new heaven and the new earth. And he's expecting them to kind of like keep one eye on the future, as it were, about heaven and one eye on earth, rather than both eyes on earth, as maybe you know, many of us, and include myself in that, are prone to do. And by the way, these people he were writing to were not just all kind of retired and nearing the end of their lives. They were a bunch of all-age uh, followers of Jesus like we are. So let me ask you a question as we dig into uh, ascension and stuff like that this evening. Are you looking forward to heaven? Is heaven something you actively look forward to? Now, if you'd asked me that question when I, was, when I was small, I would have said, absolutely not. The idea of eternity and living forever completely freaked me out. You know, I like to get into bed at the end of the day, nestle down under my duvet, shut my eyes, and get rid of the day and actually have a bit of time out. I think Nay sounds like she's looking forward to that as well. So the idea of living forever really freaked me out. And uh, the fact that there, was, there might be no end to life really scared me. 
But I didn't know anything about heaven because to, to, to look forward to it, we have to know some stuff about it, don't we? We have to know things about what we're looking forward to in order to be able to look forward to them. So this evening, I want us to talk a little bit about heaven. Because as Peter pointed out, it has implications. What we think about heaven has implications for how we live today. And as Nay has reminded us, today is Ascension Day. We're going to read the passage from the Bible for today, which is in the book of Acts, if you've got a Bible. Uh, But it talks about Jesus going back up to heaven, as somebody correctly answered uh, in the quiz. So get your Bibles out. We're going to look at Acts, the first 11 verses of, of chapter 1. And just a reminder, this is Luke's second book. Luke wrote Acts. He wrote, he wrote his own gospel called Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And in these first few verses, he's actually talking about Jesus' time on earth that was in between rising again from the dead and going back up to heaven. So he's kind of drilling down on this little bit of time where Jesus was alive before he went back up to heaven. So it's, he, so he writes this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. After his suffering, after he died on the cross, um, he presented himself to them, that's to his disciples and his apostles and his followers, and he gave them many convincing proofs. He needed to convince them that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, we're going to be talking about that next weekend. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the, uh, the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in Cheltenham and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky because they saw something physically going on as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven is going to come back the same way that you've seen him go up. So Luke's working really hard here, isn't he, to make sure that we, the readers of this account, and everyone else who reads it after us and who's read it before us, that we're reading about something that really happened. And he says a number of times, they were looking at him, they saw him, you know, he did it before their very eyes. And actually, this notion of a man who'd been dead, who came back to life, who then was standing there one moment and then just started going up and up and up before their eyes and then into the clouds. That's not your kind of everyday experience, is it? But Luke was willing to risk undermining the credibility of his account or being thought like he was crazy because he was determined to get it into his book. He was determined to have it in uh, the book, the beginning of this book that then goes on to talk about what the rest of the disciples did. And I think that's because Luke is absolutely determined that we should know that Jesus has gone back to heaven, that heaven is a real place that heaven exists and that Jesus has gone there in a real physical body that they could all see and touch, even though it had changed its sort of physiological 
uh, there's probably a scientific word for it, but makeup so that he could actually walk through doors. That was what his resurrected body could do, wouldn't it? He could walk through walls and walk through doors, but he was visible. They could touch him, they ate with him, they talked with him, they had a laugh with him, and then off he went to heaven. So here's my first question for this evening. What do you believe about heaven? What do you believe about heaven? Do you believe that it is a real place that really exists? Is that what you believe about heaven? Or do you believe that it's something else? That it's maybe some kind of um, nice idea, a kind of figment of someone's imagination or something that kind of we Christians like to think about and talk about and maybe other people do because it kind of makes us feel better when life's not going very well and uh, it might, makes us feel better about the end of life. Some of you will have, have heard what Marx said that, uh, that religion is the opium of the people and what he was really saying was that people subscribe to this kind of view like, of things like heaven that is a sort of false notion, a false hope and a false comfort for when life is tough. And therefore, it's a bit of an insult to human dignity and human intellect. And what we really need to do is free ourselves from these kind of silly ideas that could have the potential to make us a bit passive about life. Uh, and what we need to do is free ourselves from the idea that there's this uh, sovereign, divine being who we're accountable to and realise that actually we're the ones with all the power. We're the ones that can change the world. We're the ones that can make things happen. Do you believe that heaven is a real place? Or do you believe it's actually just a nice idea or a figment of someone's imagination? Maybe you're not sure because you haven't really thought about it. I hope this evening will give us a bit of food for thought. If you do believe that heaven exists in some shape or form, I wonder what you know about heaven. Because there's a difference between believing in something and knowing about it. A number of years ago, some of you might uh, have heard of a chap called Carlton uh, Burpo. Slightly unusual surname, slightly unfortunate maybe. Carlton Burpo, he's 21 today, but he faced death when he was four years old. And he went in for emergency surgery. The doctors didn't expect him to live, but he did live. The surgery was successful. And as he was beginning to recover, this little four-year-old chap, four-year-olds don't kind of just open their mouths and spit all the beans all at once. As he was beginning to re recover, he started talking to his dad about some, some things that he'd seen when he was physically on the operating table, except that he clearly had a near-death experience. And he started describing people that he'd met. As I said, things that he'd seen. He described meeting Jesus, and he described meeting some of uh, his dad's family members and details about them and about their lives that he couldn't possibly have known, uh, especially age four. And his father was so shocked about some of the things he started saying that he started putting them down in a book. He wrote the book. The book is called Heaven is, is Real. And it's apparently it's number 17 on Amazon's best-selling book of all times. Someone gave us this book recently. It's called Imagine Heaven. It's written by a chap called John Burke. And this chap, John Burke, has interviewed over 100 people who have had what uh, he calls near-death experiences. Experiences where they either clinically died or nearly died. And uh, then, obviously, you know, 
came back to life or didn't die and to have stories to tell, reports to tell. And this chap has interviewed some of them, he's, he's scrutinised them, he's talked to, to doctors uh, and he's included accounts from people of different uh, religions. Uh, he's included people that we might think might be quite sceptical about that kind of thing, like doctors and professors. It's a fascinating book recalling and describing the accounts that uh, many of these people have had. But the one person who went to heaven, who began in heaven, and who came down to tell us about heaven, obviously, and who therefore has all the facts at his fingertips, is Jesus. And I wonder if you know what he says about heaven, because all kinds of people have all kinds of theories about what heaven is really like. And Jesus talked about heaven as being a real place. A real place. He frequently described it. I don't know what adjectives that you would use to, if you know or, you know, some of the things that Jesus said. What would you, how would you describe it? Jesus described it as being like a party, being like a celebration, being like a great banquet, being like a place of joy, of fairness, of justice, of love, of healing, of restoration, of uh, friendship. And also a place of reward, which I'll come back to in a minute. But here's one of the most striking things that Jesus says about heaven, which I just want to unpack slightly this evening. Jesus describes heaven as being like home. If you've got your Bibles again open, I want you to turn to John chapter 14, verses 2 and to 4. And he says this, there's plenty of room for you in my father's home. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? I don't quite know what that means, whether he's going to like do some decorating and get the paint out or whatever, or I don't know. But he says he's going to get a room ready for us. And if I'm on my way to get your room ready, I'll come back and get you so you can live where I live. Now, he said this to the disciples about the day before he was crucified. So as they watched him going up to heaven, they would remember him saying this, I'm going home to get a place ready for you, and then I'm going to come back and get you. Jesus is saying that heaven is ultimately God's home. Heaven is where God lives. It's a real physical place where God lives in a different dimension to the world that we know. And Jesus is saying that if we want to understand a bit about heaven, if we want to think a bit more realistically about heaven, then we need to think of heaven in terms of home. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about home. Some of us in here will have had very different home experiences. For, for some of us, home will have been a really painful, challenging place to be. But if that's the case, one of the reasons why it will have been painful and challenging is because somehow we know what home is meant to be like. And home is meant to be a good place, isn't it? Think about the best place, the best ingredients of an earthly home. You know, think about the best meals, the best games, the best senses of adventure together with those that live in your home, the best parties, the best experiences, the best gatherings, the best laughs. And home's meant to be a great place to be, isn't it, when home is working well. Think about how you feel about going home if home's a good place for you at the end of the day. It's meant to be a place of certainty, isn't it? You know, we shut the door behind us, or we used to a year ago, <laughs> before we all had to work at home. We shut the or study at home. We shut the door behind us. And no matter what the day faces, throws at us, however unpredictable or however challenging, at the end of the day, we go home. And we shut the door again. 
And home is a place where we kind of kick off our shoes. It's predictable. Things are how, you know, they were when we left them. It's familiar. It's a place of refuge. It's a safe place, isn't it? It's a place, hopefully, where we're known and loved and where there's a welcome for us. It's a place where we can be ourselves, a place where we know freedom. That's what it should be like. That's why home has the power. Home is so significant. It has the power to set us up for greatness or to sabotage us in life because it's such a significant place. But it's the place that we're known. It's meant to be the place where we're known and loved and accepted for who we are and where we have a history. So I don't know about for you, but for me, it represents a place of comfort, of conversation, of connection, of fun, of wrestling with stuff, of friends who come and visit, a place to potter, a place to play, a place to put on my slippers because it feels good to be there. And Jesus is saying that to think of heaven, we're to think of home. But it's God's home. It's where God lives and it's where he rules and reigns. And because it's God's home, it's going to be amazing. Because God is amazing. If you've ever thought of heaven like I used to do again when I was younger, of like harps and clouds and, you know, babies with wings, whatever, those kind of strange ideas, or that it's going to be really, really boring, friends, think again. Think again. Heaven is going to be amazing. Do you know what? We are going to be more exhilarated in heaven than we have ever been on our most exhilarating day or in our most exhilarating experience on earth. You know, heaven is, the Garden of Eden was heaven on earth. It was heaven and earth combined. It was this beautiful place where, where Adam and Eve could walk with, with God and God gave them a commission to subdue the earth, to multiply. They had life in all its fullness, untainted by the kind of sin that entered the world when they made their choice to go, no thanks God, we'll do things our way. When heaven and earth are reunited fully and completely, you know, it's going to be the Garden of Eden, but it's going to be the city you know, of Jerusalem. It's going to be God's home where we will live exhilarating uh, lives. We will feel more alive, more like who I am, more like who you are than you've ever felt. I, I, I can't imagine what that feels like. I just know it's going to be good. We're going to be feel more full of wonder than we've ever felt on this earth. I can remember sitting, we went to the Niagara Falls a number of years ago. I can remember sitting on a boat at the bottom of the Niagara Falls with this water just gushing down, this incredible beauty, the power of that place, and just being in awe at this kind of of the moment, of the place, of the, of the spectacle, as well as the joy and the laughter of being in that boat with friends. Well, that's nothing compared to some of the, to, nothing compared to the smallest experiences that we're going to have in heaven. You'll feel more complete, more safe, more known, more loved, more accepted, and more welcomed than you have ever felt on this earth. Heaven is real and heaven is God's home. And the best efforts of our, our imaginations cannot conceive how wonderful it's going to be. It's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So what are the implications of all of this? Why did Jesus want his disciples to see him going back up to heaven? Because he could have done that while they were asleep. 
Why did he want them to see where he was going, to know where he was going, to know that heaven was real and that he was, uh, you know, that's where he is? Obviously, there are a number of implications. I'm just going to pull out a few. The first is this. Since it's God's home, the way in is by giving a response to an RSVP, not by trying hard to get there. The story is told by a, a woman called Ruthanna Metzger. She's a professional singer, and in her book, she's written a book called Not in the Book, she tells the story of um, her invitation to sing at a millionaire's wedding in America. And the reception was on the top two floors of the Seattle uh, Tower in Columbia. And after an hour of partying, the bride and groom began to climb the staircase to the top floor, and the wedding feast was about to begin, and all the guests were invited to follow. And at the top of the stairs, she describes this sort of satin ribbon across the top. It was super cool. But there was a man standing by the ribbon, and, she, and he had a book in his hand. And each of the guests, as they queued to kind of get into this incredible reception, had to kind of, you know, tick their name off. It's a bit like us coming to church. If you've booked in, not quite as glamorous. You know, are you on the list? Did you book? Um, and they had to introduce themselves and uh, obviously, you know, have their name ticked off. And as she got there, she introduced herself and her husband, Roy. And uh, the guy who was on the, uh, you know, standing by the ribbon searched the book, and he couldn't find their names. And uh, she said, no, you, you must have made a mistake. Look again. And, and he looked again, and he couldn't find their names. And he said, I'm sorry, but without your name in this book, you cannot attend this banquet. That's the rules. That's what I've been told. And she said, well, there must be a mistake. I'm the singer. I sang at the wedding. Surely there was a mistake. And he said, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Your name needs to be in the book. It's a true story. So she and her husband were kind of, uh, you know, pointed, you know, they pointed out to her where the lift was. And uh, as they, they got into the lift, uh, they kind of heard the orchestra beginning to start in the banqueting room. And uh, they pressed the button and, and, you know, the attendant in the lift took them down to the ground floor. And they said nothing in the lift for a bit. But then her husband turned and looked at her and said, darling, what happened? And as she reflected, she remembered that, yes, there had been an invitation and there had been an RSVP on it. But the day it had arrived, she was busy and she got distracted and she put it off and then she forgot about the RSVP. But she kind of acknowledged to him that underneath she was convinced that because she was the singer, it was going to be okay. It wouldn't actually make any difference. So she never replied. And actually, Jesus told a parable a bit like that, when he, the parable of the great banquet. She finishes her story by saying she began to weep as she said this to her husband, because it began to dawn on her that this would be the experience of many, many people as they approached the door of God's home. People who were too busy to RSVP to God's invitation. People who thought that the good things that they had done while they were on earth would be enough to secure them entry. It's a really sobering story. But friends, it's a beautiful reminder, actually, that everybody is invited to God's home. Everybody is welcome. Everybody is invited. Everybody has an invitation. Everybody has an invitation. God invites every single one of us into, into relationship with him. His home is for his kids and for his friends. And everyone has an invitation. Jesus offers us, offers every one of us his forgiveness and his friendship. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, there is an open invitation to all of us. But the invitation requires an RSVP. Jesus made that clear. 
He told a par the parable of the great ban banquet to illustrate it. Every invitation requires an R well, his invitation requires an RSVP. And that response to relationship can only happen while we're here on earth. Here's another implication. It would be easier not to say this, but not to RSVP doesn't mean no life after we die. No RSVP means no life with God after we die. And the Bible calls no life with God after we die hell. We don't talk about these things very often, do we? They're challenging things to talk about. And I wonder if one of the reasons we don't talk about it very often is because actually, you know, maybe we think, well, if we don't talk about it, maybe it somehow, you know, we can pretend it doesn't exist. But Jesus talks about heaven and hell because he loves us and he wants us to be aware and he wants us to be able to make the choices that he's longing for us to make. And I'm not going to say much about this. Uh, if you want to, actually a brilliant resource, if you want to listen to something um, about hell, you know, if that's something you want to discover a bit more about, the, what the Bible says about hell, there's a brilliant talk on YouTube by Tim Mackey, the Bible Project guy. Uh, and it's called, Isn't the Idea of Hell Just Plain Mean? Great, uh, great um, title for a talk. I'm just going to say one basic truth about it. If heaven is where God lives and is God's home, then hell is just where God isn't. You know, light is the presence of light. Darkness isn't anything other than the absence of light. And the Bible talks about it with metaphors. Jesus talks about it with metaphors. And a lot of people seem to take those metaphors literally. You know, Fee was on fire this morning when she led worship. But she wasn't literally on fire. We would just say she was on fire. It's a metaphorical language. It's simply describing a reality of a lack of the presence of God, an absence of God. And we can't imagine what that's like because God has allowed us to have access to him on earth. So you can pray to him anytime. You can call out to him anytime. You can ask for his help anytime. We can experience his presence anytime because he's accessible to us at the moment. So we don't know what that will be like. But, you know, Jesus doesn't want any one of us to experience that because who would want to be, you know, who would want to exist without the presence of God and access to the presence of God? But Jesus wants us to know about it. The Bible says he wants everyone to, say, to be saved. So this notion that God sends people to hell, you know, it's another one of the, the enemy's lies. You know, I don't know if you've heard people say, why does God send people to hell? God doesn't send anyone to hell. He invites everyone and longs for everyone to be saved. That's what the Bible says. But because it's an invitation thing, we get to choose. And he leaves us with a choice. Do you want relationship with me? Will you let me be your king? Will you let me be your friend? Will you let me be your father? And we get to say yes or we get to say no. And if we, if we want to say no, that's fine. We can say no. And we say no and we say no and we say no. And then, you know, once we die, he allows us, you know, to con continue a living under the impact of that choice. He's not going to force anyone to live in his home who doesn't want to live there because he respects the freedom to choose that he's given us. Heaven is God's home, and he wants us all in it. And if we take Jesus seriously and what he says about all of this, it will compel us to go around with those invitations that he's given us to give to other people and to pray for opportunities. 
you know, for those around us that maybe aren't yet his friends or aren't yet his kids and aren't yet in relationship with him, it will, it will encourage us to pray and look for those opportunities to hand out those invitations, as it were, because that's part of the role that he's given us now. So that we're giving people around us, those people that he's put us in connection with, the opportunity to RSVP so that they can get to go and live with him in his home too. Here's another implication. Our experience of home there will be shaped by the way that we live here on earth. Again, that's what the Bible says. You know, if you're familiar with some of Jesus' words, he, say, he frequently re mentions rewards, rewards in heaven, storing up treasure in heaven. You know, a couple of verses from Matthew. If you bless people who mock you and persecute you and lie about you because you're my followers, um, be happy about it. Sorry, if you're persecuted because you're my followers, be happy about it. Be really glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And then Jesus says in Matthew 16, for the son of man is going to come to his father's glory with his angels. He's going to come in his father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they've done. Again, we don't talk much about rewards, but Jesus mentions rewards. Why? Well, he must want us to know about them. He must want us to know about them. And heaven, going and spending eternity in God's home, is not a reward for the things we've done on, on, on this earth. It's an RSVP only thing. All we can do is say, yes, thank you. But then when we, when we uh, are there, we will be given rewards depending on how we have lived on this earth. And that should encourage us when we're, when we're going about life making choices that are hard to make because we love Jesus, because we love God. So it's like Jesus is saying, friends, I'm taking note, not in a kind of spying way. You know, I'm taking notes so I can, you know, put some black marks against you and punish you. No, it's I'm taking note of the tough choices that you make that cost you. I'm going to reward you. They're not going to be in vain. So that day you were ridiculed for your love of me. I didn't miss it. And I'm going to reward you for acknowledging me. That sacrifice of money that you made that cost you. I've put treasure in your account in heaven. It's going to come back to you. That risk you took, that opportunity you gave up, that promotion you overlooked because you didn't feel that it was right and it was going to compromise your, your integrity. I haven't forgotten. I've taken note. There's treasure in heaven. That person you chose to forgive instead of taking revenge on. I'm taking note. There's treasure in your account. Do you know, God is fair and just. And anything we do for him because we love him or we invest in his kingdom while we're here, Jesus says he's going to give it back to us in treasure in heaven, that we can invest in heaven now while we're here. How, how encouraging is that? Do you know, I know people that have... have, have, have um, given up relationships or turned down the offer of relationships that other people have encouraged them into because they felt like God was saying, no, that's not for you. You know, some of you will know people, maybe you have received backlash from family because of your faith. Or you've worked really hard to, to walk in right relationship with people who've really hurt you. None of that stuff is wasted. None of that stuff is overlooked by God. He's going to reward you for it in heaven. And, you know, often we get rewarded on earth as well. Last thing, if Jesus is saying that heaven is our real home, 
the place where we are going to spend forever. Well, do you know what that means? Earth is not. It means that earth is not our home friends. We tend to think about earth as being the real thing. But Paul says that heaven, all of the things that are invisible to us at the moment, are more real than what we can see with our physical eyes. But the world tries to persuade us, doesn't it? That now is it. That the world is the real thing. That life on earth here is where it's all at. So put all your money, all your energy, all your effort, all your hopes, all your dreams into making life now as good and as, as amazing as it can be, as comfortable as possible, as relaxing as possible, as safe as possible, as long as possible, as enjoyable as possible. And when as Jesus ascended into heaven in front of the disciples, they would have remembered what he was saying. Home is there. He's going home to prepare a place for them. So home is not here. So friends, if home is not here, we shouldn't be wearing slippers here. We should be wearing boots. Slippers is for when we get to heaven. So you might want to think about them as walking boots because we're on a journey and we're not there yet. Or you might want to think about them as army boots because we're on a battlefield. But if we try and make a battlefield or a wilderness or whatever, a journey, a place that we're walking through, if we try and make it home, that's when we get frustrated. That's when we feel incredibly unfulfilled. That's when we feel confused. That's when we feel betrayed. That's when we feel, you know, particularly let down with God because it's not all happening now and feeling like home now. Friends, heaven is not pie in the sky. Heaven is a real place. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a Christian form of escapism. It's a real deal. It's a real place. Jesus wanted to see his followers to see him going there so that it would compel them in their witness. That's in the passage, isn't it? So you're going to be my witnesses. So that it would compel them to be his witnesses. So that it would give them courage to make those tough choices that look like they're pointless, except that they're sending treasure ahead. And so that it would comfort them when life wasn't working out, when in the trials and the challenges and the struggles and everything else. Because here is not home, there is. And I pray that the same is true for us, that we would be a people that would look forward to heaven, that would have one eye on heaven and one eye on earth. Because that's how Jesus wants us to live. And if we've got one eye on heaven and one eye on earth, we will live this life that he's given us to, to live on earth in the way that he wants us to. Amen. Why don't we stand?